1: I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. I'm excited to announce that this week's sponsor is Farlex Reels. For those of you who haven't heard of Farlex Reels, it could be time you did I saw my first one while guiding a client in British Columbia. His reel was almost more beautiful than the fish he was landing, and the sound it made was different to the other click and Paul reels I'd heard in the past. It was only a matter of time before I had a Farlex of my own, and now, with confidence, I can tell you that it's the best classic-style reel I've owned. From the steady hum to the reliability while handling large fish, Farlex reels are best described as butter. You can find Farlex at www.farlexreels.com. Bob Clay is an authority in the world of bamboo two-handed, or spay rods. As a retired guide and passionate angler, he lives off the grid on the world-famous Kispiox River, where he spends his days simply and happily. As a huge fan of Bob's, I was excited to meet with him at his home in northern BC to see if I could hear more about how he came to build his life and his world-famous rods.
2: was born in Trieste, Italy. My father was in the uh, Coldstream Guards during the war, met my mother in uh, Italy, and after the war they went to England, got married. My older sister was born in England, and my mother wanted to have her next child born in Italy, so she went back there to have me. Oh. <laughs> and then we immigrated to Canada from England in 1952.
1: And your father was around during all of this, or was yes. it, were you just with yep. your
2: mom? No. Nope. We uh, immigrated as a family. My father, they were living in England at the time. Okay. And uh, there's an opportunity for him to come to Canada, so he came to Canada. Yeah, and then we kind of moved right across Canada. We lived in Kitchener, Ontario first, then Calgary, Saskatoon, Winnipeg, Toronto. My father, as he advanced in the company that he was with, kept getting bigger and better opportunities. Mm-hmm. And then we lived one year in the Bahamas. Oh, you 19- did? 1967, right. Okay. Yeah, it was kind of fun.
1: Did your parents fish?
2: No, nope, my dad didn't fish, no.
1: Were they outdoors people at all? No. Okay, so were you able to fish in the Bahamas?
2: Yeah, I did a lot of skin diving there and uh, fishing with a Hawaiian sling, and uh, yeah.
1: So how did that come to be then? Did you meet someone who was able to take you out?
2: Mm-hmm. You know, I've always been interested in nature, mm-hmm. so like, you know, I just like being outdoors, and skin diving was pretty neat there, you know, it's coral reefs and lots of fish, so it's... That's very fascinating.
1: Yeah. Okay, so where does BC come into the mix?
2: Well, uh, let's see. We moved back from the Bahamas to Calgary, I think in 68 or 69, and I finished high school there. And I went to work at uh, Woodward's department store. In Western Canada, we had a store. it's, It's defunct right now, but it was called Woodward's, and there was a department store. So I got after finishing school, I got a job there. Our family business was the shoe business. My father had shoe stores, and I really didn't want to work for him, so I worked uh, for Woodward's in the shoe department and kind of you know working your way up. And uh, uh, there was this guy in the uh, fishing department. His name was Harry Honer, and he was from England. And I, I liked fishing. I'd go out fishing and whatnot. So we just sort of hung out. And um, he didn't have a car, and I had a car. And we had, every Monday the store was closed, so, so I, I sort of provided the transportation on Mondays, and we went fishing. Oh. Yeah, so I got to learn how to fish the Bow River in Calgary, and how to fly fish, and, you know, I got to learn about bamboo rods and reels and all that good stuff from him, so it was good to have a mentor. And
1: how old were you at this
2: point? My early 20s. So I was born in 1950, so that would be in the early 70s.
1: Were you a pretty social kid?
2: Yeah, but you know you also have to make new friends whenever you go into a, a, another town. But I enjoy the outdoors and going hiking and fishing and that kind of stuff. So I always gravitated towards that.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, so you meet Harry. Mm-hmm. You're at uh, at Woodward's.
2: Woodwards, right? Woodwards Department Store.
1: Did you have any interest in getting into the fishing industry at that point? No. Was there a fishing industry at that point?
2: Well, you know. Basically, there was tackle stores and, and uh, you know, manufacturing and everything, but uh, there wasn't much for guiding or that kind of, it had, really hadn't even started on the Bow River then, right? Mm-hmm. So what happened is Harry came to me one day and with a picture of a big fish, you know, and it was Carl Mauser holding a big steelhead. And he, and he says, we should go out there, you know. And I said, okay. So we planned our first trip, and I think that was 1971 oh, wow! Okay, that, that we came out here. We didn't get a chance to fish the Kispioxin because it was out, it was high and muddy. but we fished the Maurice and we fished uh, the Babine, yeah, fished the Maurice and the Babine basically because everything else was out. Yeah, and Harry caught a steelhead on the Maurice. I didn't catch a steelhead that first trip, but, you know, I sort of got my interest up, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is all on the fly. Yes.
1: Did you, did you ever have a, you know, a, a conventional gear day?
2: In your life? Oh yeah, before before in my late teens, right. I was uh, spin fishing. I liked the little Panther Martins and the ultralight rods, mm-hmm. so it was easy to sort of convert to fly fishing because that's even a kind of little lighter, eh?
1: Right, right. So who were the big players on the Maurice and the Babine back in those days?
2: Well, Ener Madsen was on the Babine. I can remember standing on the weir there, and Ener had the lodge that was eventually sold to Pierce Clegg, and now Billy LeBlante has it. Mm-hmm he was sort of the pioneer in the on the uh on the babine i can remember him bringing this guy up from he turned out i think he was from new york and he had a he had a beret on i thought that was pretty cool and, and just below the weir, and Ener told him to fish there. And, geez, if he didn't catch a steelhead right there, you know, right in the spot, you know. So Ener really knew where the stuff was, right? Right. Right. Yeah.
1: What about the Maurice? Or was that pretty quiet back
2: then? It was pretty quiet back then, you know. I never met um, the guys that were uh, on the Maurice. Carl Mauser used to go out there and hang out in the early season, right? And um, I guess Helgi Byman was there at that time. I never met Helgi, but he was quite a famous guy as uh, fishing the dry fly on the Maurice. hmm Yeah, right.
1: So you came out that season, you didn't catch a steelhead. Right. But Harry did. Harry did, right. So you go home, you're still in your early 20s at this point?
2: But Harry said when he caught the, the steelhead on the Maurice, he says, I caught bigger rainbows than this in the Bow River, he said to me. Oh, burn. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> you know... Harry couldn't make it the next year, and I went with a friend of mine called uh, Frank LeBlanc. Frank and I came up in 1972, and uh, we came up here, and we got to the valley here. And the Sportsman's Lodge was really a, a going concern back then. And uh, that's where sort of all the fishermen and everybody kind of met. And there was the steelhead camp across the river that was, um, it was Wookiee's camp. The old-timers from the Pacific Northwest came up and fished. But anyway, at the Sportsman's Lodge, uh, we asked around, and, Somebody told us it might be good uh, to uh, try the rodeo grounds, so we went to the rodeo grounds, and lo and behold, we got three or four steelhead there, and we didn't—we right. didn't even know, you know. Oh, look at these things! <laughs> you know, we didn't even know really what they were. They were so big and powerful. And,
1: this is the Kispie. Yes, right. You know, those rodeo grounds been there that long?
2: yeah oh yeah the rodeo ground's been there you know I think since nineteen fifty five cool yeah, so we uh we caught uh, i think three or four steelhead, and then of course the river went out, yeah, and we went home and you know then we just came back every year to the Kispehawks mainly and when then we stayed at Olga's camp on the other side of the river there pretty neat i I remember one night bob york came over and she invited bob york over he was a gear fisherman then but he could really tell some good stories Eh, and he told about uh, catching this big fish and swimming the river three or four times with the rod in his teeth you know it was pretty cool stuff yeah (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) at this point are you thinking oh my god i'm gonna move here
2: no just like over the years i you know i went back to calgary and um my Oh yeah, I think in 1974, I quit my job at Woodward's and then went to Australia and then to New Zealand fishing and, you know, went to the South Sea, stayed in Samoa for a while. So I had a really nice uh, trip. And when I came back, my dad was opening up another store. So I went to work from him and we opened up another store. And that was pretty exciting opening the store, but afterwards... You know, I didn't really like fluorescent lights all that much mm. and working in, you know, these big malls, you know, it just like, it just was like, you know, I thought the outdoors is much better. So I just sort of packed it in and I moved up here in 1977.
1: And you had no dependents, no wife at this point? You were no. just a single man? Just
2: a single man, 27 years old, ready to go. Was this scary? No, I, I just decided I was going to do it, you know, like you can, you know, you're going to make money doing something.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So where'd you live?
2: Well, first came here, I worked for Olga a little bit and helped her around the camp there there in this and that. And then I bought a small piece of property now up the valley where Todd Stockner now mm-hmm. lives and built a house there. Well, I built a little cabin there first. And then I met my wife at uh, at a dance at the hall that was in there.
1: I didn't know that. Yeah. That's so cute. Yeah,
2: and then uh, she had a job as a social worker for the Yukon that winter, so I went up north with her. I worked up there for the winter. and she decided she really liked to come back to the valley so we came back to our place there we had our, we had our little cabin there and we were in the cabin two or three years 12 by 16 cabin and then I started building a bigger house mm-hmm. which Todd lives in right now and then you have children and goes on and on and on right right but fishing you know in the fall and uh, living in the valley is really nice it's a it's a small community about 300 people and you get to know people really well and uh, go fishing with them go hiking uh, just all sorts of things, uh, parties, you know,
1: yeah, yeah, but why kipiaks, why not you know why not the bulkley or why not terrace why why here
2: why here the the valley really has community here it 's just hard to find in a lot of places terrace is a is a city, so you really don 't find community. And Smithers is a really nice town, but there's something about a rural community that I really liked. You know, in the back of the land movement it was quite big back then, so I was very interested in that. I always raised my own chickens and turkeys, and I had a milk cow for a lot of years. You know, milk the cow every morning, and uh, I just wanted to live that rural lifestyle.
1: Mm-hmm. Were there grants and stuff back then?
2: Grants? Yeah, did the no. government do any grants or anything? No. no, we built as we could afford it. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, you don't if you don't have a mortgage there's really no need to sort of have a real full-time job so when you got work you saved money and then when your time off then you built exactly so you just so you did back that backwards and forwards so that's mm-hmm. the, but the whole trick was never get into debt so that you'd have to follow the job yeah. see so that was always the trick
1: i'm so happy to hear you say that because that's exactly like on the Bulky. yeah you know started with the property and then mm-hmm. starts with the trailer, and right. then the wall tent, and then we put up the four walls, but you just do it as you can afford it. That's right. It's just
2: a little less stressful, right? Yeah, well, and also you appreciate everything that you do, every improvement or every advancement. Mm-hmm. You really get a lot of pleasure out of it. Whereas if you just get a contractor and he builds the whole thing, you go, oh, wow, and then It's all over. Yeah. So as you get electricity, you really enjoy that. As you get running water, you really enjoy that. Oh my
1: gosh, running water! Oh, what I would do for running water! So I go to the truck stop once a week, and that's luxurious. Exactly.
2: (laughs) So you'll really, when you get it, you'll say, "Wow!" You know? Yeah. You won't take it for granted.
1: No doubt. Oh my gosh! I don't take anything for granted out there. I mean, I literally, if I find rubbish on the riverbank, I'm like, "Ooh, I can use that for something."
2: Right.
1: (laughs) Now out here, because right now we're sitting in your house, and it's absolutely beautiful. We're right on the Kispiaks. When you came out to this particular piece of property, did you buy this house already
2: built? No. See, I was guiding in the mid-80s and, uh, you know, and uh, supplementing our income by guiding. Like, I always figure if you work hard for two months, it was like six months worth of work, basically. And so the rest of the time, you could do other things. I did a variety of jobs, anything. My wife also works. She was a social worker. And so, you know, there was, and as, as you're having the kids, you've got one person working and the other person looking after the kids, and uh, so we were very happy at the other place. But one day our neighbors came over and they were looking for a piece of property. And they found this particular piece of property we were on, but they didn't have the money to buy it. Mm. So I said, okay, let's go look at it. And so we, we tromped through the bush together and we came to where the river is, where the house is here, and looked over the river. And I knew exactly where I was on the river, but I didn't really know. About this property, right? It's just a bush, right? You just, you just pass it on the river. Mm-hmm. So I said, "Well, oh, this is this is good," you know. So, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they wanted to they wanted to get it. So I had my house and everything paid for it. So I was able to put up the money for us to purchase the property, and we went partners. Right on the property, they live, we have, we have three quarters of a mile of river frontage, so they're up the far end of the property. So you know, it's it's private.
1: Yeah, what's the acreage you have? It's
2: 100 acres.
1: Oh, see, because when I went to buy out here, just kind of yeah. as a side note, yeah. I remember looking up here, and it's most of it is certifiably off the grid. Right. And I, it was really expensive yeah. because everything is in such enormous parcels.
2: Right. Does that, is that still the case? Still the case. Yeah. That You can't subdivide less than 100 acres. So, Well, that's not a bad thing. No. Got it. Okay, so you've got four children. Four children.
1: And they were all raised out here? Yeah. What was the biggest, op- if you don't mind... Uh, As an aspiring mother, I'm very curious. Were there any major obstacles? None. Really? It was just super
2: appreciative. The kids are natural; eh? they just come along naturally.
1: Yeah, (laughs) I suppose. (laughs) And this is a a great great place to
2: have kids. Now, the mistake that some people make is they think that their kids got to have all the things that town kids have, right? Like you know these all these different kind of lessons and this and that. But here we have nature, right? Mm -hmm. And we have horses, and we have all sorts of different things going on here in the valley. So. But if you feel like your kid's missing out because they're not getting ballerina lessons, well, then you're going to have to stay in a city, you know? Right. Right. That's fair. Yeah, so our kids, you know, fished and they hiked and they did canoeing and, you know, horseback riding was a big thing. And then, of course, there's all the school activities, like all the sports that go along with school. Basketball Mm -hmm. was a big thing.
1: Now, what about your guiding then? So you were guiding on the Kispiox back then. Yep,
2: in the mid-'80s. You see, what happened is that um, Gordie Wadley... His mother owned the, Margaret Clay owned the Sportsman's Lodge, so he was doing some guiding out of there. So I saw an opportunity for myself to start guiding. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't a lot of guiding demand back then.
1: Right? Oh, okay. Right.
2: But slowly, it kind of built. And then, you know, I was reading today uh, Bob Hooten's web, new website about the, uh, about the classified waters. And the classified waters, I think, came in 1990. So they froze everybody's rod days. Then and there was three guides operating on the river. Gordy Waddley was one, right? I I was the other, and Jim Ismond, who was a guide in Smithers on the Bulkley. He had a few rod days here because he would bring his people here every one day a week or something from Smithers.
1: Right. Okay. I didn't know any of this Uh, before. You continue. Would you mind explaining to my listener what you mean by rod days?
2: Well. What they did, the government decided that they were going to cap the number of guides on every river to what they were the year before. See, so when I went got my guide license, she just walked in and said like a guide license, and they said where for, and they just wrote wrote it out right. But as they got more in demand and people wanted to guide and this and that, they decided to cap it. So whatever number of rod days that I, rod days are the say one person fishing for one day, that's what I was grandfathered in. So they set uh, a certain number. In a lot of ways, it, it it made them more valuable because there was only a certain amount of them. But it also protected the the resident and the non-resident fishermen from having guides everywhere. Like if you were say down, if you went down to the States and you went to the Bighorn River, you know, there might be guide boat after guide boat after guide boat, right? And a steelhead fisher really can't take that kind of pressure. eh? So I think Bob Hooten was in charge of that. Okay. And so uh, he... Uh, he He put that legislation through and it got through and they, they, that's the way it was. So that time of the classified waters, then, then they, they, they said, well, right, it's going to be $10 a day for non-residents to fish and you could get your tickets. And then it went to $20, right? And now it's evolved into you can only fish the five days a week and the two weeks for non-residents. And it's going to change again and evolve again as well, right? Because, uh, because of the demand.
1: Yeah, you think it will change. It has to change, right? It has to change. Okay.
2: As the pressure grows, uh, fishing doesn't become fun anymore.
1: I'm not even uh, fishing this year. I mean, I go out in the morning. Yeah. As soon as I see the first raft go by, yeah. I go back in, I go hunting all day. Right, exactly. It just, it's killing it for a lot of people right. this year. Right.
2: Because, the, you know, after a while, it becomes all about just catching the steelhead, right? And you don't care if it's shoulder to shoulder or whatever, you just want to catch that fish. So when you go, you've fished in foreign countries before. I've fished in Scotland and and wherever, and you get your piece of water for the day, and you're pretty happy with it because you don't you're not pushed around, right? Mm-hmm. You've got it. So I think the same thing's going to happen here. You're you're going to apply for your permit, and if you if it, there's one available, you'll get it. If not, you're maybe going to have to go to the next time. All right. But but everybody's going to have to be counted. This can't be the non-residents because. What are they buying then? They're, just, they're buying, they're limited, but when they get on the water, if there's a whole bunch of residents out there, they bought nothing. Yeah. Right, so everybody's got to be happy. So there's got to be limits. Yeah. So we won't be able to go fishing all the time for steelhead. But there's lots of other places to go. There's lots of other fishing to be had. There's unclassified waters that have steelhead in them. There's trout fishing. There's there's so much empty space up here.
1: Yeah, there really is. But
2: if it's all concentrated, nobody really gets the benefit out of it.
1: No, that's very true. Yeah. Well, I will definitely be following up on that in another podcast with right. um, a biologist or
2: someone. Yeah, you should talk to Bob. To Bob.
1: Yeah. yeah. So you were guiding here. Yes. And did you, I mean, did you like it? How, well, long, how long did you yeah, guide for?
2: I guided for... Well, I sold my license to Wilfred Lee, who had a, he was helping Gord, and Gord had the license, but since it was frozen, Wilford couldn't get a license. So as soon as I said I was interested in selling my license, then uh, Wilford bought it. And, okay. and now his son, Tom, runs the business. And Wilford got some more raw days from from Gordy because he was sort of partners with Gordy, even though his name wasn't on the license. And then he accumulated more raw days from other guides or, you know, wherever they were available. So he runs a very nice operation now. Right. I think he does six to eight people a week. Oh, got it. Okay. And back when I was guiding it, it was just sort of a two people, you know, per day type of thing, and it wasn't. The week trips that you see right now, it was just a few days here and a few days there and, and, you know, two or three days here. So now, because there's a limited supply, most of the guides have gone to a weekly thing Mm -hmm. and developed a business and supplying the lodging and the accommodation, the food to pick up the transport. They're supplying the whole package. So it's really changed uh, how we guide now, so,
1: and then you also guided on the dean for some yeah years? for
2: Blackwells there yep. in the summertime. Mm-hmm. And I guided, I did a little bit of guiding for him on the Blackwater River in the summer too. That mm, was kind of fun, super fun. Yeah, right. Yeah, I enjoyed my time there as well.
1: Coming up, Bob and I dive into the specifics of bamboo rod building. Again, thank you to Farlex Reels for making this episode possible. Today, Farlex makes both a Click and Paul direct drive reel and a multiplier, each of which are perfect for fighting steelhead and salmon. Function and style go hand-in-hand hand with these reels, and they are truly works of art. Simple yet elegant, timeless yet historic. If nothing else, open your eyes to the mastery of designer Tim Jellinus and check his reels out at www.farlexreels.com. Let's kind of fast forward to where we are today so when you stop guiding you need to make some income well see I had, the, I,
2: I had well I had the plan you see I sold my business but I worked for Wilford for probably the next 10 years part-time so I had some income coming in plus for what I sold the business for but during that time I was also starting my rod building business because that was the plan to shift from guiding to the rod building business, right. which I which I loved. I liked the guiding business, but what I didn't like about the guiding businesses was expectations, and that's my personal uh, weakness, I guess, is that I felt bad that when people didn't catch fish or the river went out, I took it too much to heart and put too much pressure on myself. Now other people that doesn't bother at all, and they may you know uh, they make a lot better guides perhaps than I was, but I just took it to heart too much, so. I, en- I really enjoyed the rod building, and uh, I like to spend my time alone, I guess. And uh, so I just sort of gravitated that way.
1: Into wanting to just be in your workshop.
2: I've always wanted to work at home at my own place, like, you know, have a very short commute. Right. Right. So it's, uh, yeah, that's always the plan.
1: Yeah, Now, you're best known for your bamboo two-hand rods. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about those, if that's okay. Okay. What year did you technically really start getting out there?
2: I don't know really, though, the dates that much. When I first started building bamboo rods, it was in the single-handed era, and there was spay rods around, but not in in a really lot of use. So the first rods that I built were single-handed steelhead rods, and I liked the rods of E.C. Powell and Winston, which were hollow-built and lighter. And then you know the spay revolution came along, and I thought, boy, it would be really neat to build a, a bamboo spay rod. So I started looking what was available, and the sharps rods, which were spliced rods, were really neat, but they just weighed a ton because mm-hmm. they were very heavy, and also they were very long. So they just tended to be slow. The heavier something is, the slower it's going gonna, it's gonna to be. So I took the ideas that, say, E.C. Powell and Winston had about making hollow rods and tried to put them into uh, double-handed rods. So I've, the first rods I built were like 13 feet long and 12 feet long, and I soon learned that the shorter the rod was, the quicker it reacted and the lighter it was in the hand. The only trouble was is that you had to be a relatively competent spay caster to fish a smaller rod because your timing has to be a little more on. Your 13- and 14-foot rods really almost cast themselves and they're very easy to learn on and i tell people now you know get a 13 or 14 foot rod take a lesson and you can really pick it up quick you know so you just don't want to jump into a shorter rod right away the advantage of a shorter rod is that it's easier to cast in tight situations it's lighter in the hand and you can feel the fish more when you get a 14 foot rod you're casting these nine and ten and eleven weight lines not because you need that to land the fish, but you need that to cast the line and the sink tip and the fly. So if you want to cast a big sink tip and a big fly, you need a big line to push that out. So that's five 600 grains of, of line weight. In the single-handed rods, a lot of our line weights are around 200 to 250 grains, and we could catch steelhead just fine on a rod that could cast that weight. So now, if you cast an 11-foot rod, and it takes anywhere, say, from a 350 to a 450 grain line, it's got plenty of, of strength to land any steelhead that's going. So you tell people, oh, 11-foot-5-6, uh, but in their mind, they're thinking 5-6 trout. They're not thinking 5-6 bay, which is a whole different designation. So I wish, I wish we'd throw those numbers out and maybe just go to grain weight. <laughs>
1: Okay, that's fair.
2: <laughs> yeah, and then uh, people would know what a rod can do. So an 11-foot rod that takes a 5-6 line, it's 350 grains, that's like a 13 or a 14 in a single-handed rod. Oh, right. You know, it could land any steelhead or any Atlantic salmon that swims, right? Yeah. So anyway, that's the, what happened in the rod business. I got interested in, in, in building uh, double-handed rods. And the spliced rods worked out the best because every rod that I built with a nickel-silver ferrule, which is the – more the current way of building single-handed rods they would break usually below the ferrule because it's steel and wood and the steel is stiffer than the wood so you'd get a hinge point all the time and then a big fish or casting big lines would uh, sometimes break the rod and uh, that's not the case so much in trout fishing because you're you know you're fishing a dry line usually on a bamboo rod and you're catching small fish so that's not the problem so we sort of, uh, I sort of went the splice way, and I had very, very much success with that. I remember another rod builder telling me, "Well, people will never buy that." Well, now people ask for it. Yeah. So it's just a matter of education, and and people will change their minds. People ask me now for that type of rod. So then the other type of rod that I've developed is is a composite ferrule rod, which is basically a graphite or fiberglass ferrule on the rod. It has more flexibility than a steel ferrule. Uh, you have certain other problems with swelling of the of the wood, which is the same thing you have in nickel-silver ferro. So I've been working and de- developing and designing that, so I feel like I've almost got it down pretty good right now. So I'm selling a lot more of the uh, composite ferro rods for people who want a rod that breaks down quickly. Mm-hmm. I still think the best rod, if you're going to throw a sinking line, which a lot of people do, we all talk about catching steelhead on dry lines, but... Most steelhead are caught on sink tips. So if you want to throw a sink tip with a bamboo rod, you want to get a spliced rod.
1: I agree with you. And I remember when you really started coming out strong with the two hand rods. Mm -hmm. And one of the number one selling features was that I had heard that you could turn over shorter lines and not, I'm not gonna say heavy sink tips, but definitely sink tips.
2: Definitely sink tips, right.
1: And I've got two of your rods yeah. and I fish them religiously. So I feel very confident and comfortable in telling right. people that they are.
2: They can the land the fish. Yeah, 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 yeah they yeah, can. They can land the fish.
1: Yeah, and I love this place and there's no energy disruption at all. Exactly. the The only thing is, is that of course the breaking it down. Stands, it's not
2: as convenient.
1: But at the end of the day, there's all sorts of ways to rig your vehicle. Yes. So that you can make it work.
2: Make it work. Or just
1: untape the top bit and taping it after you get used to taping the splices. Actually, it happens really fast. And we can find you on YouTube explaining how to do it. By right. the way.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. People. People want these days everything instant and if you really time yourself splicing the rod together it's not very long no but, but most people want you know to break down a rod keep the line and the fly on it and just put it all together and just be out there fishing again right, right. so we all want that instant gratification what? i think that comes with our age and immediacy it's true yeah
1: what's the um history of the splice
2: well you know the splice rod they first started making with green heart rods right and um it's a way to join things again, that is makes the rod basically one piece when you put it together. So right. you get that fluid motion, and you don't get the breakage. So Alexander Grant, well, you know he was the great casting champion in England. He de- he developed these Greenheart rods, and they were spliced, and he he fi- he figured out how to do it. And so then they carried that on into bamboo rods, because bamboo was lighter. It's the strongest wood. So greenheart was strong, but it's solid and it's heavy. Yeah. So bamboo's hollow, well, it's got thinner walls anyway. So they were able to make a, more, a smaller rod that was that was stronger. And then, you know, come into our century here say in the 50s and 60s when Winston was going on, they developed the semi-hollow rod. So they took the weight out of the inside of the rod, and that's basically what I do. So, everything is kind of a progression in rod building. You learn from the people before you, and then you might add a thing or two uh, to it. So, it's kind of neat that way. It's uh, You're working with a bit with the stuff from the past and progressing it forward.
1: And you build five, what do we call it when it's got five walls?
2: F- five sided is called a penta design. Okay. There's many, what you're doing when you're making a bamboo rod is you, you're making the comb, the bamboo rod grows in the forest to so maybe two inches in diameter or bigger. So you're trying to, to shrink that down. So what you're doing is you're laminating the strips together. So traditionally the six-sided rod was, was what people used. It was the easiest and if you uh, to work with on that size. and it's the easiest to measure but the penta shape is deeper through the casting plane. So you can have a little less wood with the same amount of stiffness and in bamboo. It's very important again to get rid of the weight. So you do a bunch of little things that add up to a big thing.
1: Okay. Okay.
2: So you hollow the shape design, the is maybe a little more gets a little more power per weight than because it's deeper through the casting plane than the six sided rod. Mm-hmm. So there's different shapes. So, as a rod builder, we're always looking to improve. So shape is one of them. I like the five-sided rod. I think it's, uh, myself the best for power, uh, for, per weight. And you know, like bamboo is stronger than steel by weight.
1: Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah.
2: But, you know, uh, like I say, it's, um, it's, uh, it's not, it doesn't sort of hold a candle to graphite, but it's a more sensitive than graphite. Right. So I tell people, you know, when you catch a rod on bamboo, that it's, uh, the fish feels twice as big.
1: Yeah, it Cause actually it, does.
2: Because you really feel them. You just, yeah. It telegraphs right through, the, through there.
1: What did they used to use before they had sticky tape?
2: Oh, they, what they did with the splice, Alexander Grant's rods, they used leather. And what they do is they'd wet it. And then wrap it on, and then it shrunk tighter. Oh wow! Yeah, so it's, it makes sense. We could still do that today. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I use um, a clear electrical tape, which has a mm-hmm. bit of stretch in it, and it's you know it's uh, it's an easy thing to use rather than wetting the leather and never being quite sure, but. You know, people develop all sorts of skills. Like I said, we didn't have the electrical tape. They'd learn how to use the leather.
1: Well, yeah, they'd have to. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Now, what about your tapers? Do you come up with those
2: yourself? Well, your tapers, again, are something that you learn from other rod builders. and So you look at their tapers and you decide what you like about it and what you don't like about it. And then you modify. So you, you always start with something. Like I always tell people, there's nothing really original in this world. Like, you know, it's just like a fly, you know, like it's people tie this fly and they go, wow, this is the only one like that. Well, if you look around, it's not the only one like that. You maybe change the color of the legs or something. And so you call it your own fly. Yeah. But everything's based upon something else. And that's the same with tapers. So you'll cast different rods and you say, man, that really feels good. So you'll investigate that taper, and then you try to improve it.
1: And who do you look up to then?
2: Well, I like the, the tapers of E.C. Powell.
1: Okay, so we're coming back to Powell. Even with the two-hand stuff?
2: Even with the two-hand stuff, they, they, they um, how could you put it? They translated well mm-hmm. from the single-handed to the double-handed. Oh, because yes. all of his tapers, unlike a lot of the other tapers, are done on a mathematical formula so that it's easy for you to see which way the taper is going and what the progression is of that taper. Whereas other rod manufacturers, they started out with a taper and then they, they added this or subtracted that. So you can't really see what they're thinking, where their thinking is going. Mm-hmm. But with Powell, you can see exactly where his thinking is going.
1: Got it. Do a lot of rod builders just kind of fly by the seat of their pants or are they all pretty calculated? No, most
2: rod builders will build known tapers. So there's lots of tapers that are published out there from, right. from different rods. So so if they, say they'll if they like pain rods they'll do pain tapers or if they like Leonard rods, they'll do Leonard tapers. Mm-hmm. And everybody starts that way. And then they develop something from that
1: which is where you're at yes yeah exactly so there's clay tapers
2: well yeah just you know it, they're they're modified of from, course, from yeah. the from the powell tapers
1: yeah right yeah different so. colored legs right yeah, okay,
2: <laughs> yeah exactly it. exactly so but, then, but like i didn't i just want to you know make sure that say, i didn't invent it yeah yeah
1: you know what? I think even if you did invent something, you still wouldn't say anything because you're one of the most humble human beings I've ever met in my life.
2: Well, that's the Canadian way, right? <laughs>
1: right. It is, too. It is, too.
2: I always like things that are understated.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. I'll give you that, Mr. Yeah. Clay. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about the construction of these rods, if you don't mind. Because I, you know, I didn't really appreciate bamboo until mm-hmm. I'd. Gone into your workshop and had you explain it to me. And then also I watched that Garrison video.
2: Right, it's neat.
1: Yeah, so neat. And same with the sweetgrass video yep. about you know where bamboo comes from. from. Yeah. yeah. Could you maybe just do a really brief explanation to my listener about how bamboo rod is made?
2: Okay, first we'll start with the material. It's bamboo, but there's a thousand different kinds of bamboo. So the bamboo we use is the strongest. So it's like anything, you find the right bamboo. So all rod makers use Basically the same bamboo. There are a few Japanese rod builders now using a native Japanese bamboo, but it is, makes a very soft rod, which is applicable to some small trout streams and whatnot. So, but so the best bamboo is Tonkin. So what we've got to do is take that pole and reduce it to the, to a fishing rod. And we do start that by splitting it. And then we triangulate it because we want those, let's say it's six sided. We want six 60 degree triangles. That glue together, and they're tapered from one end to the other. So the first process is making the blank. You're doing wood, basically doing woodworking, and and using uh, planes and different and different tools to triangulate. And now what you're trying to do is make the blank, just like when you'd buy a graphite blank. A graphite blank is graphite that's rolled on a steel tube, and then the steel tube is removed, and you have a hollow uh, blank. So it's the same thing. We've got to produce that blank. Just like when they do a graphite rod, we're building it to a set taper. And our tolerance is one thousandth of, of an inch, which is small. That's what we're shooting for. It almost doesn't come out that way because it's a living material. But when I build a rod to a taper, I would like to think that if I built ten, they would be very, very like they would be the same, but just a little bit different. Okay. But, but the same, they would cast the same line and everything. You know, you can't build anything really the same. So, not, even, not even a car, you know? No,
1: it's yeah. artwork, though, in this case. Right. It really is.
2: So that's what you're trying to do, is, is trying to um, reduce that, that bamboo into a blank, a smaller stick.
1: So after you've split it then, mm-hmm. you, let's say, in your case, you've got five pieces. Right. Left, and it's, it's all triangulated, you say, right. Yeah. And it's tapering.
2: And once we've got those five pieces exactly the same then I hollow them.
1: And can you explain what you mean by that?
2: Well, we're taking out the, the bamboo is strongest on the outside. Even in nature, you see it's hollow on the inside. So we've reduced it, but now we've made it solid on the inside. Mm. So we're going to remove some of that material from the inside. And the inside material is not near as strong as the outside material. So we're trying to cut down the weight, but keep the power. Then after that, we glue it together.
1: Okay, using?
2: We, well, different rod builders use different glues. I use uh, epoxy. Some other people use a formaldehyde glues. Uh, there's all sorts of carpenters glue. There's all different things. Okay. So again, through trial and error, you come up with your preference that, that you like. Right. So now when you've got it glued together, you've got the blank. Now you're at the same stage as a graphite rod. You're going to add the handle. You're going to add the reel seat. You're going to add the guides. Mm-hmm. You're going to varnish the rod. You're going to finish it.
1: Is there a baking process?
2: Well, the, there's, a, there's a baking process, but that's when you're building the blank. And that's one thing I didn't talk about is the tempering of the bamboo. We do that with heat, just like metal can be tempered. Uh, if you're tempering a knife or, you know how the Japanese take a sword and they, and they make a samurai sword out of the the, uh, the steel is tempered. And we do the same thing in bamboo with heat. And what the heat does is shrink the cells closer together, so that it's a stronger, denser piece of material.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I was looking at mine the other day, actually, in the splicing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you basically make the blank in its entirety first. Yes. And then do you start making incisions after? or
2: Like the splices, you mean? Yeah. Well, yeah, I bet you each, each section I would make. Okay. Uh, and then I would splice them in a splice block. Oh. And you take a plane, and you plane off the piece that you don't want. And you've got a formula, of course, and you know how things are going to add up. And uh, mm. the splicing is kind of interesting: is that two halves don't make a hole, so you have to actually swell that area a little bit. Oh. You know, so that's another little Using secret. You know, water. Oh, sorry, no, I won't no, ask no. too many questions. You swell the diameter. Oh. In your in your process of making it. Oh wow! Okay. Right. Yeah. So you make that part a tiny bit bigger in there. So I, mean, I usually use about ten percent bigger in that area because when you put the two halves together if you they would be weaker than a a solid piece so you have to allow for that
1: yeah Yeah. it's all mathematics huh
2: yes mathematics and that's why again I like Powell so much because it's He's mathematics. Right. Right.
1: Now what about uh, just from an industry stance? I noticed that over the last few years there have been a couple other people well, actually there's been an abundance of people who have really gotten into bamboo rods. Yeah, it's great. Eh? And building. And a lot of people who maybe aren't understated might take not necessarily offense, but they'd view them as competition. You, on the other hand, have bamboo claves. I mean, you invite all these guys over to your home. Are you are you pretty helpful with these up-and-comers, or is there still a level of, you know, hey, it's my turf?
2: <laughs> That's really interesting. You know, in the old days, when people were doing it for a living, for a full-time vocation, there were a lot of secrets, and they didn't tell other people. Now, rod building has evolved mostly to home builders. There's very few people who actually make a living at it anymore. If you go to a rod builders convention, which we have every two years in Kamloops, you meet a lot of other rod builders, but they're mostly hobbyists. So I always tell people, if you can ask the right questions, I'll give you whatever answer I know, Right. Yep. Like if you're ready to ask the question, I can give the answer. I can't explain what I do to you if you don't know what I'm talking about. Right. So if somebody comes to me and says, "Well, how do you hollow or how do you do something like this?" They're ready to 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 accept that thing, right? Mm-hmm. But if you tell them when they first start making a rod, they go, "What?" Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I'm talking to you about it, right? Yeah. So you don't understand all the fine points, so it would go over your head mostly. For sure. So I kind of look at it like it's a craft and it should be passed down. And, you know, I've learned from some great rod builders, so why shouldn't I give it to them? Now, there's always a little bit, like, to be honest, there's always a little bit of jealousy between any any builder or whatever thinking that, you know, you could do it better or maybe this guy's stealing my market or whatever, like or like that, eh? Right. Because you want to make a living. You want to keep that one step ahead yeah. uh, of somebody else, eh? So that's the, that's the hard part, yeah. is, is saying, well, yeah, you should share. Okay. So I try to share as much as I can with other rod builders.
1: Right. Is the market growing?
2: Uh, I don't know if it's growing. Um, you know, rod, like I say, there's less rod builders mm-hmm. making a living at it now, but right. there's more rod builders.
1: But what about consumer? Because I know a lot of people, when I travel, a lot of people want to ask me about bamboo rods. They see it in videos. They want to know all about it. I can't say enough great things about it, Bob. Yeah. And they cast just as far as my friends who are casting the carbon fiber rods. Yeah. And I feel everything. Yeah. And the loops are sexy. I mean, I'm a huge, obviously, you know, I'm a huge fan of your rods. But do you find that the market is growing at all from a consumer stance?
2: I, I don't know. You know, it's, it's really, for me, it's really hard to tell because... What we're a niche in a niche, right? Right. <laughs> so it's our business is so small, yeah, compared to say the graphite market, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like I asked uh, Simon Gosworth at Rio there, what percentage is the spay business of Rio's total business? Well, it's five percent. Oh, is that it? It's five percent. You know, if you if you own the weight forward five line, yeah. That's the line that sells the most, right? Okay, of course it is. That's that's the one you want to capture. So spay business is not really big. And then we're a little bamboo niche (laughs) in the spay business, so it's very very tiny it is tiny so i make uh, you know 35 40 rods a year that yeah yeah you know and and then you know james might make uh, i don't know how many rods he makes maybe 24 to 30 rods or whatever that he can make so like what are we talking you know
1: that's not very many people that's not
2: very many people but you have return clients i have return clients that want something else usually a different type of rod or some of them want a trout rod Oh, so, yeah. so most of my, most of my guys are, are spay guys because there's so many trout bamboo rod builders, say, in the United States, that it's very hard market for me to compete in. Mm-hmm. Because I was a guide and because I knew how to spay cast, I could develop a spay rod. And a lot of people out there, bamboo rod builders... They can build a really good spay rod, but they don't know how to design one because they don't know how to cast one.
1: do it. Exactly.
2: Yeah. If you can't cast, well, how can you tell what you got?
1: It's a surprise. And actually I do run into some of those people and I, I'll i be totally honest with you. I yeah. don't have much confidence. Yeah. As soon as I heard that you were building them, I was down because yeah. I know that you've been immersed in this lifestyle for so many years. Right. And
2: uh, yeah, so you know how to spay cast. So that's the one advantage that I had getting into the bamboo rod business because where am I? I'm Timbuktu in Northern British Columbia. I'm not around a big, center or anything like that right
1: and you literally live on your r&d right here
2: right so i've been lucky in my life in a few things one was getting a guide license when i did when you were able to walk right into the to the fish and wildlife and say i want one now you you got to spend millions of dollars to get one and in the bamboo uh, rod building I was sort of the first guy to start making what I call the modern bamboo spay rod. There was lots of the older bamboo spay rods out there, but they're not like what I'm building. So I took sort of a, a mixture of the modern and sort of the tradition and sort of melded it together. Yeah. And so I was lucky that the spay revolution was happening and that I happened to be a spay caster that could build bamboo rods. So yeah. another lucky coincidence for me.
1: I guess luck you can call it that. Yeah, and yeah. I'm just gonna put you know, put the disclaimer out and say, you know, I haven't had to change my my casts. I still can use snap tees and yeah. I do obviously a lot of snake rolls and yeah. stuff. Scandy lines, work a treat on them, yes. I fish skagit lines on them. Yep. I fished big flies, I fished small flies, nice. I fished everything nothing's changed yeah. except that now I actually am enjoying my casting.
2: Right. And and I think what the rods do is make you a better caster in the end.
1: Oh, a hundred hundred and ten percent. They've really taught me how to circle up. Yeah. So I'm really I've really had to make sure that it's as more I'm critical in a short rod. Yeah. My as I'm coming into the back side of my D loop and I'll focus more on this in an upcoming podcast with Pete yeah. Humphreys, but that circle up in the back there and that minor drift and the minor lift from my elbows. Yeah. Makes, I mean, I almost need it for that bamboo mm-hmm, rod to right. be beautiful. And now that's translated into all of my casts. That's right. And it's, it has made me a much better caster. <laughs> much better and I cast, and right. I do credit you with that you no. know. So thank you. Well, sorry, <laughs> I credit the bamboo that's rods. the bamboo rod, right? <laughs>
0: um,
1: no, we'll wrap this up because we're at your house yeah, and sure. you always have people here. But just wanted to know how people can find you because you are pretty quiet and you are not really. You don't market like you don't. There's marketing done for you by other people because we all love you and we love what you what you give to us as far as quality experience on the water. But where you need to plug yourself for me, where can well, find you you? Well, you know,
2: I don't need to be any busier. That's that's <laughs> the lifestyle that I've chosen, which is, I guess, not money first. I've chosen to live in an area that I enjoy and to, that I can fish in and stuff like that. So I try to not consume as much as I well, I'm still a consumer. Don't get me wrong. I like all those reels, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I try not to consume a lot. And, and so I don't need a lot of money. And in life, I found that it's always a trade-off between time yeah. and money. Mm. So which do you love more? And for me, I love my time better. So I don't need to have, I don't need to be a big success. Maybe if I was uh, 20 or 30 years Younger when I started this business, perhaps I would have morphed it into a graphite line, a fiberglass line, a real line, a, a fly line business and gone for the big banana. You know, <laughs> but it didn't turn out that way. It yeah. turned out that the way that I wanted to live, you know, I don't have to be a big commercial success.
1: No, I want to be like you when I grow up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I look around at what you've got here and I literally am like, oh my gosh,
2: I want this so bad in my place. Uh, just don't get into debt.
1: No, no. And that's exactly why I yeah. live in a 20 by 15 foot four shack wall That's right, or four wall shack. Yeah. So
2: <laughs> you, 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 yeah, if you just, if you just wait, it all comes to you. Like I look around here right now and I go, geez, where did all this, where did I get all this stuff? Right, and I got. I sort of know. I sort of got to get rid of the stuff. And like I say, I haven't had a lot of money, but how come I got all this stuff? You know, it just comes. I moved out here in a 1960 Volkswagen with a little trailer and a dog, and now I got all this stuff. You know, (laughs) people keep bringing you stuff too. Well, you know, you get stuff. You just accumulate it, right?
1: Right. Now, if somebody wanted to get some of your stuff, as in a rod, could they find
2: you at Riverwatch? Yeah, they can find me on the web. eh? like this is another great thing I've been lucky in my life. But the third thing is the internet right yeah you know yeah. how would you run a home business you, before without the internet yeah so you know i do a web page my sister helps me out with the web page and i try to change it up all the time and get new pictures on there and stuff like that and i get to meet some really interesting people today i sold a rod to a guy from germany right. who was here and i get people from japan and i get people from the states and people from i had nigel here from england this year so it's really international. Oh, he
1: told me that he... Yeah, that's yeah. right. I booked him an, into Terrace. Yeah, oh, he good. loved you. Yeah, yeah he loved yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I'll put the link up on my website if that's okay. Yeah. And you're booking out about 15 months seems to be the going...
2: Yeah, you know, I fluctuate anywhere from a year to a few months, you know, so to keep that uh, thing... Like, like we were talking before, if people want to wait two years, that's an awful long time. So it's nice that you want to keep within that year. It lets me know what I'm doing over the next year. You know, and like I say, I'm on the sort of maybe more of the downhill slide i am probably in the future going to make less rods and more rods right like i don't need to make a whole bunch at rather go fishing the older you get you want to spend more time going fishing right Mm -hmm. that's the point of it isn't it
1: it's supposed to be (laughs) yeah right I think some of us forget that sometimes yeah Yeah. well look I'm going to let you speaking of quality time I'm going to let you get back to Kateri you're beautiful I love Kateri Mm -hmm. those of you who have not heard of Kateri Clay um, you must look her up she is just unbelievable Uh, so I'm going to let you get back back to Kateri and is there anything that you wanted to add or ask me no I think you
2: covered it pretty good awesome thanks Bob okay thanks everyone
1: and that concludes this episode of Anchored. Please be sure to take a moment to leave a review about Anchored on iTunes. It truly makes my day when I read them. Thank you so much for listening.